Amen. You may be seated this morning. Good morning. Welcome to Mission Church this morning. I don't know if it's what we just witnessed or the extra half scoop of energy drink I put in my drink this morning, but I am hyped up and ready to go. My name is Pastor Justin, and I'm one of the pastors here at Mission Church. Thank you all for being here. For whatever reason you are here, we are extremely glad, whether you have come from near or far, that you are here to worship Jesus with us. That is what we strive to do in all of these things from start to finish is to worship Jesus. And today we will be continuing through our sermon series through the Gospel of Matthew. If you want to turn there, if you haven't already, Matthew chapter 17. I hope and I think that all of you have probably been as convicted and confronted by some of these scriptures in the Gospel of Matthew as I have, but hopefully all of it has served to open our eyes more fully to who Jesus truly is, His true character and His true nature. And I pray that this week will be no different as we look at this passage. Now, if you've grown up in church, been around church, or even just kind of been in and out of church much, you've probably heard the term transfiguration to describe today's text. And that is what we are going to look at. But we're going to look at it a little bit more uniquely today. We will look at it kind of in two separate events. The transfiguration on top of the mountain and then the descent coming down the mountain and what Jesus tells his disciples from there as two kind of separate things. Now, also, we will probably take a look at, well, not probably, it's in my notes, we're going to. Uh, we're going to look at the parallel passage in Luke 9 as well. If you want to put your finger there so you can turn to it easily or if you just want to listen when we get to that point. But I think there is something we can learn from there as well. But first, before we even get started, we have to remember the context that we have just come out of and the context that we are going into. We must remember that it was just six days ago. You, you read in Matthew 17, 1, and after six days, it was just six days ago that Peter confessed Jesus as Lord, Jesus as the Christ, Jesus as the Son of the living God. Then immediately we see him get it wrong, in rebuking Jesus for Jesus telling him what is about to happen to him and that he is going to fulfill the scriptures and go and die. We see that it was only six days ago. Then as we looked at last week, he gives us some of the hardest instructions in scripture that we must deny ourselves, that we must take up our cross daily, and that we must follow Jesus. And that is what we are coming out of six days ago still in recent memory. And then Jesus, looking ahead, is not far from the crucifixion. And he knows it's coming. He knows it's time. Now, we don't know exactly the dates, obviously, but the, the day of transfiguration in some religions is celebrated on August 6th, and then Easter this year is April 16th. So at, at most, we've got a few months before the crucifixion. Most people agree that those dates are probably just best guesses. So Jesus may not have anywhere near as long as we think. We, he may have weeks. He may have days. We don't know exactly how long the distance or the time frame between this moment and the crucifixion is. But if we look back at verse 21, we know that Jesus knows his time is coming. He says, it says there, from that time on, so from here on out, Jesus is telling them that he was going to Jerusalem, he was going to die, and he was going to be raised. Jesus knows, and Jesus is wanting to prepare them for this time. 
We've looked all throughout Matthew how many times it looks like Jesus is teaching the multitudes and he's kind of trying to teach the disciples something first and hopefully the multitudes get it as well. This is, will be no different. He is preparing his disciples because he knows the persecution they have faced thus far is nothing compared to what it's about to be when he is arrested, killed, and then resurrected. So six days after, he rebukes Peter and tells them that it is going to be very tough to follow him. It's going to be very hard to remain faithful because of what is going to happen to you. You must stand firm. You must be steadfast. He then takes his three closest disciples, his three closest friends in ministry, up this mountain. And that begs the question, why these three men? Now first, we want to consider is that in Old Testament and New Testament tradition and law, something that is witnessed has to be witnessed by two or three people to be valid. So that first step is that's why he took three. He wants this story told. He wants this story believed. He wants people to, to not kick it out just because of cultural standards. He's not, he's not changing his ministry to be culturally relevant, but he does not want that to be a stumbling block for people when they say, well, only one dude saw this. He could be making it up. No, three men saw the exact same vision, saw the exact same event. But also, as we see in Galatians 2, verse 9, that these three guys were pretty important. In the early church, it says in Galatians 2, 9, Paul writing, When James and Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars. It's a pretty Lofty standard there. I wish someone would say that. He's a pillar of just about anything, and I would take this as a compliment. He's a pillar of cleaning the floors. That just sounds much better than he's good at cleaning the floors. But they seem to be pillars in the church. So Paul is writing, these three guys later on become very, very important. And I would, I would venture a guess that this moment we're looking at today has a lot to do with that because it changed them. So these three men... Go up the mountain with Jesus. Now, to this day, we do not have a firm grasp on exactly what mountain they were. It's kind of actually funny that Matthew is so detailed. Six days later, three men go up the mountain, and then he doesn't mention what mountain. I think God probably did this on purpose because he knows we would probably start worshiping that mountain because that's where Jesus transfigured himself. And most people actually believe that Mount Tabor is the mountain, and guess what's there? A place to worship because they think this might be the place where Jesus was transfigured. God, I believe, this is thus saith Justin, left that part out, because which mountain does not matter. It is about Jesus. So we, we don't know which mountain, but we do know that God seems to do really important stuff on mountains. He met with Moses on a mountain multiple times. Elijah defeated the prophets of Baal on a mountain there is the Sermon on the Mount. Hey, you guys can talk. All right. Sermon on the Mount. And if you're old, you know Jesus was hung on a hill called Mount Calvary. Nobody knows that hymn. I grew up singing it. But mountains are important. This would be no different. God is doing something very, very poignant and very, very important on this mountain. So we see in verse 2. That Jesus was then transfigured in front of them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. I don't think there's a proper analogy for what these men were seeing. But if you can bear with me for just a second. I'm really glad this winter has been mild because there's nothing harder than driving 
when there's a, a fresh glaze of snow and the sun is beaming down on it. And then we do this number, which is also obstructing our view, by the way. This number to try to drive, and we're swerving, and then, oh, I can't see because of my hand. Oh, I can't see because I'm blind. We do that number. That's, that's the best I can do. Looking directly at the sun, maybe. I don't know. Don't try that one. But Jesus is very bright here. That's the best analogy I can give you. Very bright. These men knew something big was happening. Happening. Now, this word transfigures means, definition is to transform into something more beautiful or elevated. It is where we get the word metamorphosis. It is where we get, if you think of a caterpillar turning into a butterfly, it is being elevated, it is being changed into something more beautiful. However, we must be very careful here not to diminish what Jesus already was saying he changed into anything. This was not Jesus changing anything about himself. He was simply revealing what he had been all along. You see, Jesus had never given up his glory. He had never given up his divinity. He had never given up his deity. He was fully God every moment of his life. This was no different. It was just being shown and revealed to these three men. Philippians 2, 6-8 says, Who, Jesus Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, Jesus emptied himself by adding something to himself. He didn't take anything away and replace it with his humanity. He simply cloaked himself in humanity. He made it to where people would treat him as a human. If he walked around shiny all the time where we couldn't even look at him, they probably wouldn't have killed him. He had to cloak himself in humanity so that people would treat him as a human. And he was fully human. We have to get that. He added humanity. He didn't add just a looking like a human. He was a human, but he was not any less God in his human form. See, in this moment, he was revealing to these three men what had been there all along. What they had seemingly been missing, if you read just a few verses before, when Peter rebukes Jesus for telling him he is going to die. And he is giving these three men a glimpse so that they would know and they would be prepared for what was about to happen. But then we see something really peculiar. With Jesus, in his glorious, transfigured state, are two men. The Bible tells us that this is Moses and Elijah. There's really three glaring questions about this situation at this point. So when the Bible reveals Jesus is there, he's transfigured, there's two guys with him, it's Moses and Elijah. The first question to be asked is, how did Peter, James, and John know who they were? They didn't have Instagram back then. They didn't have Facebook back then. If I ever hear somebody's name and I'm like, I don't really think I know who that, you better believe I'm Facebook stalking you to see if I know your face. Okay, I'm looking it up. They didn't have that back then though. The best answer I can give you is I don't know. God revealed to them that this was Mo Maybe he was carrying the Ten Commandments. I don't know. But somehow the disciples knew that's Moses and that's Elijah. And we'll see that they knew that here in a couple verses. So I don't know how to answer that. God revealed it to them. Hey, obviously this is Jesus. This is Moses. This is Elijah. The second question, though, it says in Matthew that they appeared with Jesus and were talking with him. He doesn't say about what. 
this is where we're going to turn over to Luke. So the question is, they're talking to Jesus. What are they talking about? Luke chapter 9, verses 30 and 31. I think this is a very important detail. And it says, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So these two men show up with the transfigured Christ. They are talking with him, and they are talking with him about what he is about to accomplish. We'll discuss that in just a moment. The third question is why these two men? Why was it Moses, and why was it Elijah? Why wasn't it David? Why wasn't it Abraham? Why wasn't it any number of people you could name in the Old Testament, or the New Testament for that matter? Why was it these two men? And these two men were pillars in the Old Testament. They were synonymous with something. Moses was synonymous with the law. These disciples would have recognized immediately, hey, that's Moses, that's the law. And he received it, he wrote it down, he enforced it, he judged people by it under God's rule. Moses represented the law. Elijah was synonymous with the prophets. He was famous for calling the Israelites to repentance under King Ahab because they had begun worshiping Baal instead of the God of Israel, instead of Yahweh. And he is the one famous for calling them back to the repent, calling them to repentance and back to worshiping God. He was so faithful, God didn't even let him die. He took him to heaven without him dying. That's how, that's how faithful I want to be. I, don't, I think I've missed that boat long ago. But I would love for Jesus to do that. Don't think it's going to happen. But Elijah was so faithful that God took him to heaven without him experiencing death. So we see standing here with Jesus in his true most glorious state, the law and the prophets. And they were both talking with Jesus about what he is going to accomplish. If you look back a few pages, Matthew 5.17 tells us that Jesus did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And now in Matthew 17, we see him standing with the law and the prophets. Matthew 11.13 says that all, it's a key word, all the law and all the prophets have prophesied until John, meaning John the Baptist. So all the law and all the prophets have prophesied to this man, and now we see Matthew 17, 3. He is standing with the law and with the prophets. He was about to go and fulfill all of these things. He wasn't abolishing them. He was fulfilling them. So what exactly are they talking about he is going to accomplish? This is what we have to get. He was going to accomplish everything that was written about him from the beginning of time. Everything pointed to this. Everything pointed to Jesus is the central focus of all eternity. We have written about him. We have written laws pointing to him. We have written prophecies pointing to him. He is going to accomplish everything. He was going to fulfill all the law by living perfectly and obediently, even unto death, even death on a cross, never sinning, never breaking a single rule. And I've just read through Leviticus. That's difficult to do. There's lots of rules in Leviticus. I'm like, really? What? You can't wear cotton and polyester, huh? Jesus never broke any of those. He was never anything but holy. He was never anything but perfect. He was never anything but righteous. But also, he was going to fulfill all the prophecies. 
by dying as the suffering servant, the sacrificial lamb, the promised Messiah, the chosen one, the bearer of our iniquities, the one crushed for our transgressions, the anointed one, the cornerstone, the rock of ages, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, and the prince of peace. This is what he is going to accomplish. They were talking to him and they were saying, you're going to do it. Finally, Jesus, all this time we've been talking about you and we've been trying to point people to you. All of this time we have been trying to let people know that you are coming and now you're here. You're finally doing it. Let us rejoice because you are finally going to accomplish what we have told people forever that you are going to accomplish. See, he fulfilled the laws that lacked any power to change people. The law was the law, but it didn't change you. It just told you to obey it. But he was also fulfilling the prophecies that said one is coming that can change you to obey it. He's coming and now his time to reveal himself more fully to these men was here. See, like I said, God does important stuff on mountains. This is M.O. This is no different. And what we have to get, this is not a cool trick. It's not a magic trick that Jesus showed up brightly as the sun. This is not just some statement, as if Jesus ever made just some statement, but this is definitely not a moment of him just talking to the disciples. This is a pronouncement. This is a decree. This is a declaration of who he is, not something that will ever be forgotten. These men are never going to forget this moment. This is a pronouncement. And then we see, in verse 4, Peter... Oh, this guy, he never learns. Um, if I had been called Satan a week ago by a man that was now glowing in the dark, I probably would have just kept my mouth shut. But that's beside the point. Okay, I probably would have just not said anything, been like, cool, Moses, Elijah, I don't know what all this means yet. I hope you'll tell me later, but I ain't going to say anything. But good old Peter, he can't help himself. He says, I'm, I'm, this is just funny to me, Jesus, it's good that we're here. Hey, guy that is glowing, transfigured, brought two guys back to the dead, having a conversation with them, showing us that you are fulfilling all the law in the Scriptures. Good thing we're here to pitch the tents for you because I know how confusing those things can be. It just makes me laugh. Anyway, he offers to build tents for three men. He calls them by name, so this is where we know that they knew exactly who was there. He said, let me build a tent for you, Jesus, for you, Moses, and you, Elijah. He uses their names and here, here's my favorite part of this particular section. It says in verse 5, while he was still speaking. So he definitely had more to say. He was going to keep going. I, I remind myself so much of Peter, it's not even funny. I always have more to say. And sometimes my friends have lovingly told me to shut up. This time, God tells him to shut up. God appears in a shadow and literally cuts him off. While he was still speaking, God overshadows them in a cloud, and he says that it, they knew who it was. These men immediately recognized this was the voice of God because they fell down face, face down and were terrified, as they should have been. But God tells Peter and all of us, shut up, one. But then he tells them, this is my son, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. This sounds exactly like another place in Scripture, right? Anybody? The bat Y'all can talk, I promise. The baptism of Jesus. This is exactly the same language. At Jesus' baptism, 
right before he is going to the most difficult thing he has faced in his humanity up to that point, being tempted by the devil in the desert all alone by himself, weakened in his human form because of fasting for 40 days, God reiterates to him, you are my beloved son. In your humanity, if you ever thought about doubting that, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And now fast forward to here, he's getting ready to face an even more difficult task in the Passion Week, in the crucifixion, in the resurrection. And God wants to reiterate one more time, this is him. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. But then he adds something that he didn't say at the baptism. He adds three words and he says, listen to him. Now this is definitely for Peter, but I think all of us would be wise to heed this warning. God is saying, listen to what he is saying. Open your ears. He's been saying it a week ago. You rebuked him. He's saying it again now. He is here. He is telling you what must happen to fulfill the law and the prophets. What must happen is he must go to Jerusalem. He must die a physical, real death. He must die, and he must be raised again. Listen, open your ears, Peter. Open your ears, American Christian. This is what has to be. This is the only way. It cannot be lost here that this is yet another time, second one in a week apparently, where Peter tried to stop Jesus from fulfilling his God-given destiny. Peter is standing in the way again of Jesus doing what Jesus came to do. Why would he want to pitch tents for these three men? So they could stay up there. Again, worshiping the mountain. Not worshiping what is going on here. He wants to stay there. Let's just hang. We don't have to go to Jerusalem, Jesus. If something bad's going to happen there, the answer is, don't go there. Let's just stay up here. Yeah, we got plenty of light because you're shiny. Like, we, we're good. We don't, you can make fire out of nothing. We're good. We can stay here. And God is saying, no, Peter. You don't understand what you're asking. You don't understand. You have to listen to him. Not letting Jesus go to Jerusalem because something bad is going to happen will make something much worse happen. He must go. Luke 9.51. It's a section of Scripture just after the transfiguration in Luke. says that when it came time, his face was set to go to Jerusalem. Jesus was going to get there. He was going to go to Jerusalem, even though he knew what was going to happen there. Even though he knew his time was coming. He knew it would be difficult. He's not going to be stopped. He's not going to change course when it gets hard. And God is saying, listen to him. This is how it must go down or all of you are doomed. Now, they were terrified. It says they fell face down because they were terrified that it was God. This is a theme in Scripture. The presence of Almighty God is scary, as it should be for sinners. But we see multiple times in Scripture where God revealed Himself this fully in a cloud or, or in other ways, and it says they were struck like dead men, or they were paralyzed, or, or in this case, they were terrified. They fell down on their faces. And here's the thing, they should have been terrified. This is Almighty God. They are sinners. They shouldn't even be allowed this close, and yet God is revealing himself somewhat to them, not fully, but somewhat to them, to tell them this important truth. But then what happens? This is the most beautiful part of the whole scripture. See, Jesus doesn't spin around quickly 
and rebuke Peter again and call him Satan again. He lovingly goes to him. It says, Jesus comes and touches them. He could have just spoken, right? He could have just said, ah, you messed up again. Just get up. It's fine. No big deal. No harm done. Whatever. But he goes and he touched them. He was with them. He was identifying with them. He was by their side. He, Jesus, was now for them fully. And he touches them. And then he says, Rise and have no fear. Be not afraid anymore. You no, no longer need to fear the wrath of God. I am taking that. You need, need no longer fear the judgment of God. I am handling that. I am absorbing all of the things you should rightly be terrified of. I am taking that. I, Jesus, am with you. You see, God is not scary for those found in Jesus. God is scary when you are outside of Jesus. And Jesus is now revealing to them, I am for you. I am taking this wrath for you. You have no need to fear anymore. And this is where the story reaches its climax. It says, they opened their eyes and who did they see? No one but Jesus only. First of all, that's a little redundant. No one but Jesus only. They are... (laughs) The writer here is wanting to make very clear they saw no one but Jesus. Jesus alone. And this is the whole point. It is all about Jesus. It has always been about Jesus. It will always be about Jesus. And there is no changing that fact. It is not about Moses. It never was. It is not about Elijah. It never was. It is not about any of us in this room. It never was and it never will be. The law and the prophets bore witness to him, to Jesus. And now it is all being fulfilled. I said this before, this was a pronouncement. He's saying, you see see Moses, your hero? I am a true and better Moses. You know those laws he wrote down? I wrote those. I am the true and better lawgiver. You were never meant to uphold those laws perfectly because I am going to uphold them perfectly. I am the true and better law upholder. I live perfectly because you never had the chance to do so. I live perfectly so I can be your perfect sacrifice. I am the true and better law. I am not just some rule book to live by that people can hand out and you read and hopefully you make it one day. I am the law that tells you how to live but shows you how to live and then becomes your righteousness for you and give you the power to follow these rules. I am the true and better exodus. I save my people forever to the uttermost. The exodus was not an escape. It was a rescue And now I am here to rescue you for eternity. I am the true and better all of these things. You see, Elijah, your hero, your ever faithful prophet, I am the true and better prophet. No more pointing forward to someone who is to come. No more be on the lookout for someone. I am here. I am the true and better teacher. Not only teaching, not only showing, but living in place of you. I am the true and better example. I'm not exemplifying righteous living, but I am being righteous in every way, and I am giving that righteousness to you sinners so that you can have the same righteousness that only I possess. He was making a pronouncement that it is only this 
Jesus worthy to follow up or down a mountain. It is only this Jesus who is worthy of all of our worship. He's making a pronouncement that it's it is that only Jesus that is being revealed here in the Scriptures. It is that Jesus that demands not only worship, but demands obedience because He is that Jesus. It is this Jesus who must be before all things, and we see this clearly here on this mountain. And we read of this most clearly in Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. If you would, turn with me to Colossians 1, 15-23. We're going to work through this very quickly, I promise. Colossians 1, 15-23. It says there, He, being Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. This means us. This means humanity. God does not exist for our sake. We exist for His sake. He created us. We are to exalt Christ, to make much of Him. All things were created to display His glory and only His glory. Verse 17 And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything He might be preeminent. Anytime you're reading Scripture and you see the word so that, pay special attention to what comes after, because God is telling us here the point of all of that. So that in everything He might be preeminent. This is why all of these things happened. This is why He was born. This is why He added humanity unto Himself. This is why He lived perfectly. This is why He was transfigured. And this is why He goes to the cross in our place. Not for us. Not to save us, but to give Himself glory in saving us. We get the bonus It is so that He might be preeminent in everything, including our lives. That we would give Him our lives because He has saved us. Because He has died for us. Because He is the perfect sacrificial Lamb. Preeminent means first. It means surpassing all others. This is why any of this matters. Because Christ is above all and in all but because He is before all. He mattered before we mattered. He will matter long after our lives are over. It is all about Him. Verse 19 continues to say, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by what? The blood of His cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body by the flesh of His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So now, because He is preeminent, because He made Himself so, we reap the benefits of that. We, it says here, who hated Him. There was never a time in your life before Jesus that you did not hate God. And a lot of you are blaming, like, I was a goody two-shoes. I didn't break a lot of rules. I didn't live rebelliously. You hated Him. 
because it says so in Scripture. And just because you don't feel like you hated Him, let us not trump God's Scriptures. We were hostile in mind towards God. We hated Him, and yet He reconciled us for eternity so that we can bask in His preeminence forever. So that He might be preeminent above all things forever. Now I said we would treat this as two separate events. And I know you're thinking you just took like 30 minutes doing the first one. I hope you're not planning. This one's quicker. But in verses 9 through 13, we see Jesus coming down the mountain with his disciples. And Jesus tells them something very strange. He says, hey, what you just saw, don't tell anybody until I am killed and resurrected. Until I am raised from the dead. This is the coolest story ever. Jesus went up a mountain and glowed like the sun and talked to two dead guys, and I'm not allowed to tell anyone. It doesn't, I have a friend, great friend of mine, been friends for years, and our friendship has basically devolved because we don't see each other very often into just texting each other when we do something really cool. That's basically all we do. Like the other day, I was pumping gas, and I stopped it right on $30 even. Nobody thinks that's cool? Okay, that's fine. I think it's awesome. I took a picture of it and sent it to him like, just did this. The other day, he flipped a water bottle and it landed on top of a door that was open, took a picture, sent it to me. This is how our friendship rolls. The other day, I did something and I couldn't explain it in text. And I said, hey, I just want to read this. I said, I just did something that can't be explained in text, but it was really awesome and I did it on the first try. And here's the best part. He responded with, that's awesome, man. Congrats. He didn't even care what it was. He just knew I wasn't going to lie to him and I, I, had, I had actually done something cool and that he was happy for me. And yet Jesus is saying, you know, the coolest story that has ever, ever been told, don't tell it. I got to be honest. I love Jesus and I want to obey Jesus. That one would have been tough. As soon as I got to the foot of the mountain, I'd have been like, hey, Jesus, tell me not to tell you guys. But something really awesome happened up there. But he, why would Jesus tell, tell them that? Why would he not want that told immediately? And he, it's because he knows his time is coming. He knows there is more to the story. And he knows if this story gets told now, people are just going to flock to him like they did with every other miracle. Do it again, Jesus. That was cool. Do it again, Jesus. We don't care about you. We just care about the tricks you can do. And Jesus is saying they're going to miss the point. He wants this story told, but he wants it told in the proper context. And that context is, is while I, because I am human, because I am God, because I have shown you that, I am still going to die and I am still going to be resurrected. And that is the point of this story. Last week, Brian said something when he was discussing take up your cross. He said, without a cross, there is no crown. What we have to get is without the cross of Christ, there is no possibility of a crown. It is all through his death and his resurrection that we have any chance of receiving eternal life. See, we are all resurrection Christians. Without the resurrection, I ain't up here talking to you guys today. I'm going to be at home sleeping. The resurrection sealed the deal. It showed that his sacrifice was worthy of, what, of God's wrath. This is why Jesus tells them not to tell the story yet, because there is more to the story. Jesus is saying the story must be told, but I want the whole story told. And why? Refer back to Colossians. So that I might become preeminent in all things. 
It is only this Jesus who can save. It is only preeminent Jesus who lived. It is only preeminent Jesus on that cross. It is only preeminent Jesus who was sufficient. It is only preeminent Jesus who was buried, who was resurrected three days later. It is only preeminent Jesus who now sits at the right hand of God. And it is only preeminent Jesus that has promised to return one day. And it is upon that return that every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess whether you want to or not. And you see, this is the only application of this text today. Do you know this Jesus? Do you believe in this Jesus as Savior and as Lord? Or will you, with weeping and gnashing of teeth one day, confess Him to be Lord against your will? Do you worship this Jesus now, or will you on that day confirm through your tears that He is preeminent? I missed it, but now I get it, and it's too late. Do you see Him for who He is now, and are you willing to give your life unabashedly and unapologetically to following after Him? Because here's the thing. If you see Christ for who He truly is and His glory and His preeminence, you cannot and will not remain the same. These men didn't. We read in Galatians 2 that they had become pillars. They saw the glory of Christ. And because they had seen Him for who He truly is, they gave their life to Him. And my question to you today is have you? Have you given your life to this Jesus? Not some form of Jesus that American culture will preach to you. Not some Jesus we see on television. The preeminent Jesus. This Jesus. Have you given your life to Him? Let's pray. Father, we come to You this morning thanking You that because of Your Word, because of Your Scripture, we don't actually have to be on the mountain to see You transfigured, to know You in Your glory. That You have revealed Yourself, what the Bible tells us, even more fully in the Scriptures. Because God has revealed who You are to us through the Scriptures. And I thank You for that. I thank You that You speak through sinful men like me. And I pray that as You have spoken this morning, that Your Spirit has guided my words, has guided the ears and the hearts of the listeners so that you might be preeminent in their lives. I pray you would save people in this room today if there is anyone to be saved. I pray you would encourage believers to go out and live as if you were preeminent in their lives as well. Taking this gospel to a lost and dying world. I thank you, Jesus. I thank you that you are the Jesus who fulfilled the law and the prophets. May we worship you today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.